Welcome back to another episode of Laser Graves. I am your co-host, E.K. Wimmer. Hello, Ear Killbot. Okay. I'm Mariah Rose. Ear Killbot? I didn't prepare. Okay. I kind of actually like that one. Okay. I think you do better when you just live in the moment. Yeah, in general. I think we all do. Well, welcome, listeners. I'm Ear Killbot, and (laughs) if this is your first time listening... This is Laser Graves, a podcast about the 80s, and if you are returning, thank you for joining us. Thanks. If you like what you hear at this podcast, please help us spread the word. We would love to get additional listeners, new audience, because we're having fun doing this. So ways you can help us is to subscribe to our channel if you haven't already, recommend it to a friend. And just generally spread the word, share a post or whatever you want to do. Rate, review, subscribe really, really helps a lot. It so, makes a huge difference. Yeah, just keep the momentum going. But uh, to those of you who have already done that, thank you so much. We appreciate you and we hope you enjoy this episode because I know we certainly are very excited about this one. Oh, yeah. We're ready to serve it up on a platter yeah we are a cool platter yeah a green glowing platter oh <laughs> man it has been it's been a crazy couple weeks though holy smokes you guys just like a little aside our house we're doing like minor construction i think in the grand scheme of things but it has thrown our world upside down in our current recording space we have it's it's basically like our entire home regurgitated itself into where we normally record so we've got like furniture from every other room of the house where we are <laughs> and it's hot cuz we're in New Mexico so i want you to understand picture you know i'm looking at a drawing i did of Alice Cooper 5 years ago there's a skeleton and like <laughs> there's a stack of guitars right here behind me yeah there's a yeah. gymnastics bar cuz eric is a beautiful gymnast i really am <laughs> and you know i've just been so jazzed to watch the olympics this time around you cried when simone biles uh, bowed out yeah i sure did you know i would liken it to when you go to one of those junky uh, odd shops or thrift stores <gasps> and you look in the back room and it's just piles and piles of stuff Imagine if you looked back there and then you heard some noises and you kind of moved some boxes and bags and there was just a tiny couch with two people podcasting back there. <laughs> That's what's happening right now. <laughs> totally. <laughs> like, don't tip anything over. Yeah, you're careful you what you grab or it'll have this ripple effect and everything will tumble down. Oh okay, gosh. well, we are here. We are ready to bring a really fun one that we surprisingly have not discussed yet. It was in our... It's been in stacks for like years and we just have not gotten around to doing it. Yeah. And this was the week to do it. And I'm really glad we did because I'm excited to talk about it. This week we are talking about the 1984 punk rock classic cult film Repo Man. What you got in the trunk? You don't want to look in there. Suppose you're thinking about a plate of shrimp. Suddenly somebody will say like plate or shrimp or plate of shrimp out of the blue, no explanation. No point in looking for one either. It's all part of a cosmic unconsciousness. You eat a lot of acid, Miller, back in the hippie days? Sell that car and send me your money. You don't need that car. Put it on a plate, son. You'll enjoy it more. Couldn't enjoy it anymore, Mom. Mm-mm-mm. This is swell. What's this? <laughs> Charming friends you got there, Otto. Thanks. I made it myself. I had a lobotomy in the end. Lobotomy? Isn't that for loonies? Not at all. A friend of mine had one. I do my best thinking on the bus. 
That's how come I don't drive, see? You don't even know how to drive. I don't want to know how. I don't want to learn, see? The more you drive, the less intelligent you are. Oh, man. When have you ever seen this? Was this a first time watch? Well, I really thought I had seen this and I was like, yeah, I don't need to see it again. I've seen it. And then I watched it and I had not seen it. Isn't it weird when that happens? Yeah. When you're convinced you've seen a film and then you realize like I totally have not seen it. Yeah. I think what happened because I knew it was like aliens. <laughs> I was like, yeah, it's the repo guy and alien thing. And I think I just read the back maybe at one point or somebody told me about it, but I for reals had never seen it. When I watched it, there was not one scene that rang a bell. That's interesting, but it's also uh, kind of part of our cultural upbringing too. So I could have seen how you just had it referenced maybe throughout your teen years or something and just assumed that you saw it. Yeah, I'm sure. I know it, you know, came on TV. I kind of remembered Emilio Estevez and his earring, but n- nothing. It, so it was like a fresh watch for me. But you've seen it before, correct? Oh, yeah, I've seen it quite a few times. I used to watch it in high school with friends. This was kind of a just one of those must-sees, especially when you're in bands and stuff. You just... Yeah. Because we'll get to it, but mainly because of the soundtrack. Right. But the whole overall just kind of punk feel to it, which was really fun. At this, you know, mid, mid-level mid 80s films had that, that feel to them. There's yeah. quite a few punk rock films that are just awesome. And this is just one of those classic cult films. So you liked this when you were like 14, when you were like, For sure, I'm yeah. punk. Yeah, absolutely. When I was, Yeah, when I was in a punk band, I liked this movie. <laughs> so yeah, this hit me at the right time. Would you like to share the name of your punk band? Uh, sure, I guess. I, maybe because it's fitting for the subject matter of Repo yeah. Man. My punk band in high school was called <laughs> Neighborhood Alien. <laughs> so cool it was actually pretty cool looking back as like 14 15 year olds yeah because most like 14 year old punk bands are like i don't know hate mom or whatever yeah suburban life (laughs) what was joy division's first uh stiff kittens oh yeah Yeah. and also neighborhood alien lent itself to really great uh marketing stuff so we could do shirts and, and things like that with aliens on them and i remember my bass player and I, we went to Roswell one time for some reason. We were traveling. and Why wouldn't you? Yeah. And we found a little shop that was selling a whole bucket of guitar picks that had alien faces on them. And so we bought oh. them and that's what we would use at shows and just like throw them to the crowd and Smart. stuff. And there would be these little alien guitar picks. Pro tip, if you're like, I don't have enough alien stuff, get in your car, <laughs> drive to Roswell Fill it up. Fill up your trunk. Hopefully, it's not a dangerous trunk. We'll yeah. get to it. But there is more alien stuff in Roswell than there is in any other spot in this whole wide world. Speaking of Roswell, it's in New Mexico. And the film Repo Man starts in the opening credits on a map of New Mexico. It's so true. Yeah. And we are here. We're in New Mexico right now, surrounded by aliens. That's true. They're probing us as we speak. (laughs) (laughs) Don't stop. It's so uncomfortable. Yeah, it it uh, starts in Los Alamos on the roadmap, which makes sense because he's transporting something that's radioactive and then travels through New Mexico into like Utah or something like that. Mm. Pretty sure this film takes place in California, though, because it was definitely filmed in California. Yeah, that's where it was filmed. But I also saw somebody, somebody's take on it said it was filmed or that it takes place in Albuquerque. Yeah. And then I, I saw a few people say that, too. And then a bunch of people did the whole like, oh, no, it didn't. And, you know, ganged up on him. So okay. I think that was that was a little off. How about we just go, it was filmed somewhere in the Southwest? I'm pretty sure it was California. Okay. But it started in New Mexico. Yep. That's what's important. But speaking of the starting of this film, we should back up and go over how this film came to be. All right. Kind of 
general back we're not going to really get into it but just a, a general overview of it okay this film was written and directed by alex cox who was just 29 years old at the time i love watching movies by really young people just trying really hard to make a film yeah and it's funny how often they become cult classics because they're just more in tune with that kind of fringe group of people Mm -hmm. who get it versus Mm -hmm. you know major production studios and seasoned directors trying to tap in to the youth oh right like a 50 year old you know millionaire sitting in his la studio going "Mm, i think this is what 14 year olds feel like (laughs) yeah yeah that's not the case here so he was 29 at the time he actually went on to follow this up with sid and nancy which isn't my favorite film but at least what? he was continuing on with kind of musical-based films and stuff. Gary Oldman was genius in that and well, everything. Yeah, I do like him a lot. I mean, I think that Gary Oldman's just awesome. I mm-hmm. mean, Dracula's going to forever be his mm-hmm. his ultimate cool <laughs> hot yeah. take, hot take. Yep. Okay, the story, though, interestingly, I didn't know this, was rooted back in the early days when Alex was younger. He actually apprenticed for his neighbor, who was a real repo man. So that's where a lot of this kind of was founded in, was the early, weird, crazy days of of following along repo men. So he took, like, his first job and was like, I'm going to make a crazy movie about it. If, pause here, if you were going to make a movie based on your first job, what would it be? Oh, man, it would be boring. It would be about landscaping in the summer heat. Oh. Actually, that could be a pretty funny comedy. Sure. Yeah. Mine would be um, uh, changing out bedpans in a nursing home. (laughs) Oh, man, we should combine them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so that was where the kind of beginning parts of the story came from, and then he just filled it out from there and added in the sci-fi elements Mm -hmm. and stuff. It was also coupled with a buddy of his. One of the guys who plays one of the punks in the film wrote a short story. I just don't remember his name off the top of my head. And they adapted part of that script, too, into this. So that's where a lot of the punk stuff comes from. And then he took the script and he... I love this. This happens sometimes. He took the script and put together a four-page comic to go with it oh. and submitted it. So there was a visual to go along with it. And it worked because it caught the attention of a former monkey, <laughs> Michael Nesmith, who really dug it and decided to produce it, like put up his personal money oh. for it. Yeah. And that's that. how the film got picked up. And then he pitched it to Universal and they were like, yeah, I guess so. So that's how the film got made. Wow. It was given a budget of $1.5 million, which is a pretty good budget. Especially in 84. Yeah. And then they also... Little side story that I thought was funny, because in the film, if you know Repo Man, there's all these little scenes of the hanging Christmas tree air fresheners throughout right, the yeah. film. I discovered that that's just because they were one of the only sponsors of the movie. So they just hung the air fresheners everywhere. I kept waiting for it to lead to <laughs> yeah, something. Yeah, me too. But it didn't. And the cast said that they didn't even have a scent. They were scentless, which they thought oh, was even funnier. Thank goodness. Those things are intense. Have you ever gotten in the car with somebody when they haven't taken the, you know, because it says, like, take the plastic down halfway? Or, yeah. And then there's always that car that you get in and it's like, well, that's because to be fair, driving around with a like plastic bag half draped off of something from your rear view looks so junky. Well, I'll okay, I'll stop there. Okay, let's I don't want to because maybe maybe our audience loves loves those. I don't want to alienate anybody. Oh, no, I have nothing against that. I just have everything against the process of having to slowly pull the bag off over time. Either have a bag on or don't. (laughs) It's weird. It's like walking around with your pants at your knees until you're like three days later, you can take them off. That's a trend. It is true, actually. (laughs) Yeah, that was a horrible analogy. (laughs) My bad. (laughs) This was shot in July and August 1983 in L.A. And this was definitely slapdash. I mean, they had a budget, but... This was kind of everybody was all in. A lot of the cars and stuff were just from the cast and crew. And Mm -hmm. they built the Repo Man um, office and stuff like that from scratch. But it was just kind of scrounging whatever they could come up with, which comes across in the film. I think that's one of the authentic things about this film. I agree, because that Repo office, it's dirty and gross. Like, if you look at it, it looks authentically disgusting. (laughs) 
Yeah, and I just also like how the film has this kind of gritty rawness to it that feels like mm-hmm. kind of punks making a movie. Yep, is, you know absolutely. what it feels like. The crew that was involved, you know, we talked about Alex Cox, but the only we'll get to the score later because that's such a major component of this film. But the only one that I really did want to stop on was the cinematographer, Robbie Muller. So he was very established. Yeah, that name is familiar. Yeah, and he went on to do a lot of really cool things, too. So listeners would know him. He went on to do, like, To Live and Die in L.A., but he did Dead Man. He did Dancer in the Dark. He did 24-Hour Party People. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, he's super established. And he, on set, had a lot of respect. And that'll play a part later on with a particularly grumpy cast member who would only kind of do what he was asked if they told him, well, Robbie would really love if you did this, he would do it for him. Oh, okay. (laughs) We'll get there. But that's kind of somebody who I felt like we should just mention really quick. Yeah. So it's, it's a mix. This is really an interesting combination of some seasoned cast and crew with very, very fresh faces. And I think that that comes across in the film. I agree. And I would also like to note that Alex is British. Yeah. He's not American, which is very interesting because this is such a, uh, like um, the American culture plays almost another character in this film. And it's interesting because it's through the lens of a a British filmmaker. Which is interesting, too, because it's a satirical comedy about like the reagan era and consumerism yeah. and stuff but mm-hmm. it's coming you know it reminds me of a previous episode motel hell that was also directed by a british man right and had a really cool twist to the genre because it was kind of from a different perspective i don't know though how long alex lived in america before he wrote this like yeah. i don't know if he was just born in england i don't know his backstory but i know mm-hmm. that he was really into and um submersed in the the punk rock scene too of the early 80s which is part of why this comes to be. So I think that he was definitely clued into what was going on. And I would think that if you're hanging out with that crowd in the early 80s, a lot of those conversations were very common in the punk scene about consumerism and mm-hmm. politics and stuff like that really played a part. Right. I guess I it's pretty gutsy and in a way that only a 20-something could be yeah. to just be like, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go to this other country and, and make a film about how they are. <laughs> yeah, no joke. The film opens with a character, a man who is wearing sunglasses, but only one lens. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah. So you know already, like immediately, something is off. He's driving through the desert erratically, Mm -hmm. and he gets pulled over. He pulls over, and the cop comes up, and he's like, what's in the trunk? And this man with the one sunglass lens is like, oh, you don't want to look in the trunk. (laughs) And then the cop is like, give me your keys. And this is a little problem I had right off. Yeah, you did catch this. So he gives the cop his keys because you couldn't just pop the trunk in the, in the, in 1984. Mm -hmm. The cop opens the trunk and we don't see what's in the trunk. No, it's like a Pulp Fiction thing where it's just a glow. Yes. Oh, and the Pulp Fiction influence is... Un- oh, that's true. Yeah. yeah. There, I, I think about that. I watched a few different interviews where pe- different people were saying how much Tarantino took from this film. Yeah, he really did like it. He was definitely a huge fan yeah. of it. So anyway, he opens the trunk. A bright light. We see a skeleton. Oh, I love it. I He's love like it. irradiated and... All we're left with is smoking boots, and this character drives away, and this is my problem here. How did he get his keys back? Yeah, that is kind of funny that the trunk is then closed and he's driving away. It's a small detail, but a minor detail. Great opening scene. So cool. Yeah, it's so awesome. We should talk about our driver, who is a household name for really... Deep cut uh, horror fans. Like us and us alone, maybe? Uh, no, I would say some of our listeners for sure. 42 other people in this world. <laughs> yeah. And definitely if you're a listener of our friends, the Bad Taste Video Podcast, you're going to know this guy. Mm. Our driver is Fox Harris. He is uh, kind of hand in hand with a lot of Fred Olin Ray films, but you would know him from things like Terrorize, Warlords, Deep Space, Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers, uh, Alienator. I, though, was very proud of you because you said, I recognize his voice 
And yeah. I didn't place it at, right away. And you did. And what did you know him from? Dr. Caligari. Dr. Caligari, one of our favorite movies. So he is in that. And uh, I didn't catch that, but I was really proud of you for that. Thanks. Good job. Well, he has a very, very distinctive voice. So yeah. I wasn't a huge stretch. But yeah, he's great. He, so he's like um, alum from from Laser Graves. <laughs> yeah, he is. Yeah. Uh, Fox Harris is great. In real life, he did not know how to drive. And I, if you've read up on Repo Man, one of the funny stories about the production of this is that he crashed the car like multiple times because he just didn't know how to drive and that they had to get stunt doubles and driver doubles constantly because he didn't know what he was doing. I actually read that after the scene at the uh, car wash, when he pulls up to the gas station, you can see a bent up, um, a, a bent up, I don't know, gas thing. And it's because he ran into it previously in a, in a different take. <laughs> That's funny. Speaking of the car, did you read up that the car was stolen? I did. Yeah, and they had to get another one. That's really funny. Man, this whole production was a bit of a process. But I also feel like you can't go through one of these, you know, debut cult feature films without a lot of war stories to come out on the other side with those are like uh it's like little golden eggs that you get to find and enjoy as a viewer i i don't ever dislike those i love those what was it was it i feel like it was sorority house massacre where you can see the shadow of somebody squeezing a bottle of fake blood oh yeah i think uh i I think that's slumber party massacre part two i don't know yeah i'm not sure one of those massacres, but I love those. I feel like they're a special gift, and if you spot it, you you win. Yeah. That's it. I love when the boom mic like just kind of oh. drops into view from the top. Doesn't, that always makes me super happy. It's so rewarding, yes. Or uh, like Alien Space Avenger when he's supposed to not have any pants on, and then it accidentally <laughs> drops way too low in the frame because you can tell they didn't block it right, and you see he's like totally just wearing his underwear and a towel. Yeah, it's so great. Oh, my. <sighs> All right, well, back to this movie. So we immediately cut to Emilio Estevez. Yeah, Um, he's another alum. We did uh, Maximum Overdrive. Yeah, go back and listen to everything. Man, that film is awesome. That was good. I just found uh, when I was out hunting not too long ago, the alternate cover that we didn't have. That's the really cool, I've showed it to you, the um, really awesome illustrated cover, Maximum Overdrive, that's got the the front of the diesel with the mangled body all cut up in it mm -hmm. and i was so excited and then i turned it over and the whole box was ripped apart it was just the cover and i almost bought it just for the cover i was gonna ask but it was like three bucks i'm like i'm not gonna pay that boo um but i would like to get that version sometime well well emilio is in this this is pre uh maximum overdrive i don't remember i'm pretty sure what is time emilio (laughs) (laughs) Emilio plays a character named Otto. So if I call him Emilio, you know who it is. If I call him Otto, figure it out. Or if you call him Emiliato. Emiliato is introduced. He's wearing an earring. Boy, is he. Just, that's our other main character in this film. He is in a grocery store and he's doing a bad job. Yeah, I feel like earrings have gone out of style. Bring them back. No, I never see, well, I don't. just never see people with earrings anymore. Do you? Well, I I wear earrings. No, I mean just like like teenage dudes. I don't know. I don't hang out with teenagers. I'm yeah, not, that's true. I don't either. Never I'm not mind. A creep. <laughs> Whoops. Yeah, I, sorry. If anybody hangs out with teenage boys, do they wear earrings still? Oh my gosh, our children are going to be teenagers. Oh, then we will know. Okay. Wait. Yeah, we'll scope it when we're dropping them off at school. We'll be like looking for earrings. It will be several years, but we'll we'll get back. back. Yeah. Okay. Okay, So Otto, 1984. He's wearing an earring. He's a rebel. He's a punk. He's got a job at a grocery store. He does his job poorly, and his boss reprimands him. And instead of being a normal person and being like, "Sorry, I messed that up. I'll I'll do better." He's like, screw this, screw you, I quit. It's great. I mean, it's just... I don't need money. The punk attitude. Yeah, whatever. We got to talk about his buddy. Okay. His friend. Kevin? I think it's Kevin. Kevin! (laughs) 
was a, that was a poor Home Alone reference. Well, I feel like you were just waiting to do that. <laughs> I in fact was. Okay, well maybe his name wasn't even Kevin, but thanks for your Home Alone reference. Probably Kevin. If you've seen Napoleon Dynamite, you're probably going, oh, that's who this is right here. Mm-hmm. That's what I thought, too. I couldn't find any proof, though. I mean, it's kind of like, duh, but I read an interview with the guy who who plays this character mm-hmm. who said, it's, it's not a character, that's just who I am. Oh. I was just in the, I wanted to be in the movie. And he, when he saw Napoleon Dynamite, was like, okay, so that's just based on me. But I don't think I've... I couldn't come across anything where the directors or director, I think it's two directors of Napoleon Dynamite ever said, yeah, that they kind of based him around him. But come on. Like, if you've seen it, there literally there is no question. Okay. Uh, what did you think? Yeah. I was like, that looks like Napoleon Dynamite. <laughs> it sounds like him, acts like him. So, so anyway, it, it's just funny because he's like this other random punk friend. So, yeah, after, well, was he a punk or was he a nerd? No, he was kind of like one of those punk nerds that hangs out. It reminds me a lot of Return of the Living Dead, where it's kind of like the group's just a little diverse, where it's not all, like, super punk, but there's just kind of these outsider characters. I like a punk nerd. Yeah, me too. Yeah, let's make friends with more. I don't think I know any. You're going to seek them out? Yeah. Are you a punk nerd? (laughs) Call 1-800 Laser Graves. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so Otto has quit his job in a blaze of glory, and then he goes and moshes in an alley, because that's what you do. You do. With his friends, like, one of them got out of jail, and then he's, like, kind of hooking up with his girlfriend in a bed, but it's, like, also connected to the alley. It's unclear, but she tells him to go get her a beer, and he's like, okay, and then when he comes back, she's hooking up with his other friend who just got out of jail. Yeah. <laughs> so he's not pleased. He drinks, he shouts, he wanders. And yeah. That's kind of what happens after that. But these are the kind of scenes in the film that make it a cult classic. Yes. All these party scenes, the soundtrack that's happening during the parties, the lyrics that he's sitting around singing. Mm-hmm. This is all part of just the whole feel of this movie that made it kind of what it became yeah and if you can like put yourself into the mindset of like a maybe teenager to early adult at this time and be like yeah he's he's raging against the society in which he lives (laughs) me too guys i feel it i'm gonna go get my hearing (laughs) i'm gonna go angrily walk through the streets and that's what he does so don approaches he's had his angry fight he's shouted he's moshed he's been uh, cheated upon and he's wandering through the night now it's morning and a man played by harry dean stanton <laughs> yeah. who uh, quite frankly i learned more about harry than i wanted to Oh, yeah. And I'm not sure if I love him more or less at this point. I just feel like you take him or leave him. Like, if you if you want him in your film, you're getting, you're you're getting, getting Harry Dean Stanton. You're going to get it. Yeah, I don't... I, yeah, he's a character, although I love so many movies that he's been in. Okay. Yeah, well, he's, I see that. he's Bud. He plays Bud. He is a repo man, but we don't know that yet. Yeah. So, shh. You don't... I dropped... I dropped a detail early. Oh, crud. Oh, man. 1984 is catching up to me. (laughs) Anyway, Harry Dean drives up and he's like, will you help me drive this car? I'll pay you 20 bucks. Grab this car. And basically, it's a surprise auto theft by auto. Yeah. Play on words there. We've got auto, A-U-T-O, and then auto, O-T-T-O. Bringing the heat with the jokes today. So funny. You know what? Let's talk about Harry Dean getting cast. So did you know who was, who their original, like, person they had their eyes on? Oh, was it Dennis Hopper? It was Dennis Hopper. And it turned out that he was just too, too insane at the time. (laughs) (laughs) No, this is true. He was too drugged out. And they said, like, there is no way we can deal with this guy on set. Oh, my God. Find somebody else. The studio (laughs) said, 
oh, we know who to, who to get. Who's more sane? Uh, Mick Jagger. <laughs> that didn't happen. No. And then somebody suggested Harry Dean, and Alex made a call, and he was thrilled because he was a huge fan of him. Because at this time, keep in mind, Harry Dean Stanton was a seasoned actor. He was the veteran on set, for yeah. sure. He was the bee's knees. Yeah, and he had this kind of old school look, so they thought he would be perfect. And uh, Alex, at he first, was. was extremely excited to get him in the film. Shall we talk about how that unfolded? Okay. Well, turns out that Harry Dean Stanton is Harry Dean Stanton everywhere he goes, and nobody tells him otherwise. And he really, he had a, a bit of um, an attitude on set right away. Where he was kind of throwing his weight around because here he's in his 50s, he's established, and here's this 29-year-old punk who's trying to, mm-hmm. to tell him what to do. That would be challenging. Problems started early because he was trying to kind of, you know, just come up with stuff, imp- improvise on the spot, things like that. And mm-hmm. when Alex wouldn't let him, he was getting mad and saying, like, I've worked with the greatest directors ever, and all of them let me do it because I'm Harry Dean Stanton. And he was like, well, you're not going to. And so they just immediately started butting heads. And it only got worse. So eventually, like, he refused to learn his lines. And he was saying, well, you know, some other big shot actor just tapes his lines to the steering wheel. And Alex was like, you're not going to do that. You're going to learn your lines and threaten them. So he was like, fine, I'll learn my lines. My favorite, even though he was just moping around and doing all kinds of random Just very difficult stuff. I heard about a baseball bat scene. The baseball bat scene is my favorite. Okay. So what happened was, you know that scene where they go hunting the brothers Uh with baseball bats? Like the repo men get in a gang and they all have the baseball bats, which (laughs) I love that whole scene. It's very much like um, Bottle Rocket from Wes Mm -hmm. Anderson, like where they're going to really form a gang. They get out. Harry Dean wanted a real baseball bat. And everybody's like, you can't use a real piece of wood. And he refused to listen. So they had a plastic one that they were supposed to use. They thought he had it. And then turns out that he's swinging this around. And one of the actors was like, could feel the wind going by him because the bat was so heavy. And said, I can't do this scene with this guy whipping a baseball bat in front of my face you have to make him stop so alex approached him and said you can't use a real baseball bat for this scene i'll give you my harry dean stanton impression for it just to give it a full effect he said harry dean stanton only uses real baseball bats (laughs) how was that (laughs) damn it Oh. oh, and then walked off. You just did that. Yep. Okay. There we go. Well, let's take a cleansing breath. <laughs> that was a good impression. So good. Thank you. Good job, babe. Almost as good as your joke earlier. <laughs> <laughs> Subscribe to Patreon. Okay. So, we've got a Repo Man. He has... Pulled in auto with O-T-T-O, not A-U-T-O. Mm-hmm. And coerced him into stealing back a car. And Otto's like, heck yeah, I'm I'm cool with this. I'm a punk. So he's stolen a car, but it's not really stealing because Repo. Takes it back with Harry Dean to uh, the Repo place, which also, did you know that every one of the Repo men had a beer name? <laughs> I didn't until I was reading up on it. I've never caught that. Yeah, so Harry's Bud, and then... There's, there's like Light. And yeah. Miller. Yeah. Yep. Okay, so they're all there, and he's basically like, okay, I'm an apprentice Repo man now, because, you know, remember I quit the grocery store earlier, so and here we are. a lot of the other Repo men are really fun actors too we're just not going to go into all of them oh no we don't have time they're all great like the whole cast is really fun in this let's go back there's this to the scene of that uh exploding cop we get like a whole scene where we realize that there's like a government intelligence situation happening they know something has happened and you kind of are getting the sense that it's something alien yes okay now let's meet otto's parents it's really weird. Like, this whole scene isn't necessary because Otto's parents play no role in this movie. But it is a comment on, like, it, it kind of sets, like, that teen feeling and talks about, 
you know, American culture, but he comes in and he's asks for like money. So he asks his parents for his like college money. He's kind of got a plan and they say they reveal that they have been uh, watching and giving money to a televangelist who mm-hmm. they're currently staring at. And so basically he has no money. But don't worry, they gave the money also in his name. But they're also just sitting there getting high because they're like former hippies. So it is an interesting scene. I, I I don't know if I would argue it's unnecessary. I think it is commentary on suburban punks. Like, why do they lead the yeah. lives they do? Is that, yes, their needs are met, but their parents are just checked out. Like that kind of generation, you know, that boomer generation just isn't really tuned in and so it lets it lets these kids kind of the suburban white kids go off and uh, get into trouble because they're not being supervised yeah yeah that is true but i guess we just never see his parents again yeah so it's it kind of goes from there and he's on that age gap too where you're like is he like an adult who lives alone so it's strange that he goes to his parents house only once in the whole film yeah Otto then goes to the repo training, and he basically, day one, starts snorting speed with (laughs) Harry uh, or Bud, and that's, they go immediately to the drainage ditch, I think from Greece. Oh, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's it, the one in L.A. Yeah, it's awesome. And there's like a race, and we meet a rival repo group that (laughs) they reoccur throughout the film, but let's not focus on it because... Yeah, it's really not necessary, and we're not going over everything, but it is fun. I do like that little kind of subplot, especially when it gets to that scene with the baseball bats. Yeah, absolutely. It's so good. It's so fun. It's real campy, and there's humor to it. Yeah. But then we've got this parallel. So we've got... Otto becoming a repo man. And then we've got this parallel of um, Fox's character driving and aliens. So it has to intersect. And Otto picks up, I guess, a babe. Yeah. And she's got to pick of four dead aliens. Mm -hmm. And she says they were smuggled off a base in the trunk of a Chevy Malibu. Yes. So she is looking for a car, which we, the viewer, already know is the one being driven by Fox's character with one sunglass. Yeah, and the repo men get this uh, notice that there's a $20,000 reward for the car. I really like this setup in the script. I think it's really clever that you have this intersection of this thing being transported, transported in a car, and it intersects with it having a bounty on it for the repo man like it's just fun it's a nice way of merging these two stories together yeah and like kind of quickly because i don't want to get caught in the weeds here as you would say um we have this chevy malibu suddenly becomes a hot commodity there is a hefty price on repoing this mysterious chevy malibu so all of the repo men that auto works with are looking for it as are the rival you know the, the brothers the yeah. brothers and kevin remember our nerdy friend kevin he actually encounters the man in the chevy malibu uh, as he's going through the car wash and this mysterious man gets out of the car to puke because he's not well it's very clear that he's not well he's got like radiation poisoning yeah that's what it kind of comes across as meanwhile the re- rival repo group the from the drainage ditch they spot the chevy malibu they swoop in and they steal it it's fun you know about this whole plot too where things are starting to intersect here Mm -hmm. this is one of the things that works for repo man that got a lot of attention when it came out is this crossing of genres because it's not one thing or the other it's this this kind of cult film it's like a punk film it's a coming of age kind of it's coming of age yeah it's also a comedy but it's also the sci-fi film Mm -hmm. it but it works really well and i think this is hard to do and i think this is a why it made an impression on a Mm -hmm. lot of people is that keep in mind this is 1984 and it just kind of came out of nowhere and it really was fresh also we talked about the cinematography the whole time we're talking about this film also, the look of it is really cool. So you've got a really cool-looking film with an awesome soundtrack to a really strange plot that you don't normally see. So that's why this film 
kind of started to get a lot of attention right away. And you can see that early in this film already. Like, it's just, it stands out for the time. Yeah, I agree completely. And it's also got this, like, element of action, too, that we haven't even gotten into. There's the punks, this (laughs) side story. Like, in addition to the two stories we have going, there's this group of three punks who are just basically wreaking havoc throughout the city, adding an element of chaos to this whole narrative that we're experiencing. But it's weird because it's like such dark humor because it's pure chaos. But then they're saying things like, let's go do crimes. Yeah. (laughs) That's how punks are. And the guy sounds like, uh, you know, Bebop and Rocksteady too, the whole time from Ninja Turtles. He's got this goofy voice. Totally. And it's so, it's so strange because... They reveal things like they want to get married and have kids and things like that. It's just so strange. I think at that time, it was it was really, I don't know, insightful in a way that might be lost nowadays. But that, like, going against traditional values, but also kind of wanting them, mm-hmm. that conversation was not being had. Uh, and I think that probably made an impact at that time. Yeah, it also just reveals, you know, kids getting into trouble and mischief because they're bored, but it doesn't mean that they still don't have, like, basic desires to have a life. Yeah, absolutely. And then these punks, they're, they're like, robbing, and then, of course, they come across the Chevy Malibu. Mm-hmm. And somebody shames them. Who? Oh, it's Fox's character. He yeah. shames them. For not looking into the trunk. So they're trying to steal the car from him because, you know, he gets it back. Now he doesn't have it. Whatever. It's a whole lot. But he shames them for not looking in the trunk. So the lead punk's like, I'm going to look in the trunk. And guess what? (laughs) He gets irradiated. Yeah, it's so great. I really love this effect of them getting, like, disintegrated. It's so cool. Yeah. And then the... So one of them dies. And then the other two just run off to do more crimes. Yeah. And then let's go back to Otto and Harry. So they've got kind of a contentious relationship this whole time. They get into a fight while they're driving. Otto gets out of the car and he's walking down the street and finally spots the Chevy Malibu, which he knows is going to be a Repo Man's payday. And he gets in with J. Frank Parnell, uh, Fox, Mm -hmm. and... They're, like, kind of talking, but then Fox passes out at the wheel. Yeah. And what does Otto do? What any normal human would do, he pulls him from the car and sits him on a bench and drives away with his car. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, that's what he needed was the car. Yeah. We also have a shootout at a liquor store. We have this weird girl that's somehow intertwined with the alien group. Uh, her name is Layla. We haven't really talked about her. She has, like, a kind of a relationship with Otto, but not really. Yeah. And she gets weird and kind of in- involves herself in some torture as they're trying to... The government is trying to gather information from Otto about the Chevy Malibu. Yeah, we meet the lead detective, too, of the government, and she's got this bionic hand, but it's very unclear. Did you read about that at all? No, but it just looks like a glove. I mean, it's weird. Oh, interesting that you should mention that, because the glove, it was supposed to be like a bionic hand. Yeah, I I mean, I kind of gathered that, but... Well, they didn't have the budget for it, so they just made a fancy glove, but apparently audiences were confused because the actors were more impressed by this weird fancy glove. <laughs> and it was like, um, what's going on yeah, here? It was unclear. Yeah. Basically, it was they just didn't have the budget to give her a fully like cool bionic hand. Uh, well, okay. Win some, you lose some. We also haven't talked about the weird mechanic who works for the repo group named Miller. Uh, I feel like we have to mention him because he plays a big part in the ending. Yeah. He is very much like a tertiary character throughout this whole film. He's just like a weird crazy guy who drops in like Buddhist wisdom at <laughs> random. Yeah, it's pretty funny. Uh, so Miller is the the guy and he's just kind of been there casually throughout 
you don't really take notice of him until the very end of the film. Yeah, we should talk about the end. That's really, it's pretty fun. The way it all comes together is really fun. Yeah, so let's just say this car, the Chevy Malibu, has traded hands a great deal. (laughs) Yeah. Let's jump to when Harry Dean Stanton, uh, Bud, is in it. It is glowing at this point because it is filled with radiation, alien juice, who knows. It's never explained or explored, which is something I actually love about this film. It looks incredible, too. Did you read up on this effect? No. I was blown away by this. I had no clue. That is not special effects on that car to get that green. Mm -hmm. That's real. What they did was, I guess it cost $600 a bucket. And they spent way too much money. But they bought the reflective paint that they put on, like, traffic signs and stuff like that. Okay. And painted the entire car with it. Oh, and they used camera and they effects. used it. And so it would naturally glow. And so that's a real effect on oh that. Gosh. It's really awesome looking. Let's do that with that skeleton over there. Oh, yeah. That's okay. a great use of funds. Yeah. No <laughs> problems anyway you guys want to know where your patreon money is going <laughs> we're about to paint the skeleton in our room with reflective paint or radiation who knows who knows it's it's up in the air okay all of our characters are basically converged upon one scene harry is shot and mm-hmm. the car has a force field now isn't yeah. that interesting were you surprised by harry getting shot I don't know. I guess at that point, I was like, whatever, bud. I thought it was funny because during all the nonsense in real life on set with Harry Dean Stanton, Alex Cox got so fed up with him (gasps) that he tried to write him out of the movie early on. He was like, I'm done with this guy and had to be convinced to keep him in. So it's funny that he did make it as far as he did until he was shot in the movie. Yeah. (laughs) I wonder, like... Did David does David Lynch like him? I know Harry's gone, but I thought about that all the time, and he worked with him all the time. And I, my thought is, Harry Dean Stanton was probably a blast to be around if you just let him go do his thing. If you challenged him, though, that's probably when he became Henri and started throwing his weight around. And my general impression of Harry Dean on the set of any Lynch film. Is Lynch just getting a kick out of him being Harry Dean? Because mm. think about what he does. He just he just does what he does, and that's it. Yeah, if you give him an idea, like, this is where you need to end up, do yeah. that. Well, and think about how Lynch gives direction. Like, when Angelo Badalamente talks about yeah. his cues for scoring a film, how he says there's a person wandering right now in the woods. There, that's good. That's all. So mm. he probably does that with Harry. He was probably like, okay, here's the general idea. There's electricity in the telephone wires. And then Harry's like, cool. And then just sits there and plays guitar. I mean, I'm I don't know. I'm going to do my thing. Yeah. So I, I got the impression that he probably had a better understanding and they maybe just jived a little better. Mm. But yeah, um, I could also see how he was probably a little bit of a handful for other people. I would say in general, artists and creatives are difficult for people who just want to have like A, B, C, D. Because... Mm-hmm. The the artists, the creatives, the actors, maybe are unwilling to do that. And that can be very frustrating. <laughs> yeah, I also think on set, oftentimes there is some confusion as to whose movie it is and who's in control. Oh, and I could see that too, where you, if you've had more success and then a 29 year old is who has oh, no yeah. success is telling you what to do and you're like... Oh my gosh, I just needed yeah. some cash. But the irony of it is the film became this cult classic. Like, totally. you know, so maybe maybe let the 29-year-old have his vision. All right, let's finish this. Let's pinch this loaf. Okay. So our mechanic, Miller, remember how I just now mentioned that we have a weird mechanic? Yeah. Uh, he gets into the Chevy Malibu and Otto... Also does. Yeah, he just ditches everybody. I do like that. Which, it makes sense. It, it's like on par for his character. Yeah, for sure. And he gets in the car and the car floats up <laughs> and zooms off. Yeah, they just cruise around in the car in the sky. The end. It's so great. But it also speaks so much to that time. 
Like, uh, when we first watched it, I had to kind of percolate on it a bit and think about it in with regard to the time in which it came out. Mm-hmm. And it makes a lot of sense when you put it in its place in history. Yeah. And you think about that, that sense of uh, just getting out of it. Because think about what the 80s represented and mm-hmm. people who recoiled against that, like, Work, 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 work yeah. equals money and buy and all of that. Just, you know what? I'm going to zoom off in this glowing car. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's going to take a little space cruise for a while. Goodbye. Yeah, it is interesting. And I think about that, too. So for somebody who did watch it as a teenager, as you age and you watch these movies from your childhood, they resonate in different ways. And as a teen, it just resonated because it was like a punk movie and the soundtrack was awesome. But as an adult who's in the workforce and paying bills and stuff, I, it kind of has a different feel for me. So I can appreciate it in a different level. And I just think that it ages well. I think it's it's a cool film. It really holds up. It's fun. But we do have to absolutely talk about that soundtrack because... Oh, yes, we do. This is, this is a major component of Repo Man and fans of Repo Man, this is what they think of. I would liken it to, like I mentioned earlier... Return of the Living Dead. Mm-hmm. Like when I think of quintessential punk soundtracks, yep, it's Return of the Living Dead, and it is absolutely Repo Man. So Repo Man, if you watch the film, there's two things. There's a score and a soundtrack. The score, which is like the original music that goes yeah. along to the film versus the soundtrack that's just songs. The score was done by this L.A. Latino punk band called The Plugs. Now, this is interesting because it was fronted by a guy named Tito LaRiva, who you may better know as Tito and Tarantula yes! from Dust Till Dawn. Uh, now I immediately want to watch from Dust Till Dawn. Well, I saw when we were watching it this time, I've never picked up on that because I haven't seen this in quite a while. When it had the music and it said Tito, I was like, what? No way. It's Tito. And then right when it starts, you can hear that kind of Spanish guitar and everything. And I was like, oh, it is Tito. And it's just, but he was in his punk band at the time in, Hmm. you know, the LA scene. So that's who did the score, which is already awesome. But the soundtrack then was even more like monumental because it was absolutely like the who's who of the LA punk scene at the time. So I had people like Suicidal Tendencies, Black Flag, Fear, the Circle Jerks. Actually, the Circle Jerks have a cameo. They're the lounge band in in the club. And it's just a really awesome soundtrack. Also, we got to talk about Kevin. Oh, yeah, we should, huh? Kevin, nerdy Kevin, joined the Circle Jerks. He was like an Uber fan and then met them on set. And was like, hey, I'm in the movie. And he said that they were like, and who cares? And then went on to join them and was in the band for 12 years. So He's like, hey, I'm in the movie. And they're like, hey, you're in the band. Yeah. So uh, the moral of the story is Napoleon Dynamite played in Circle Jerks. <clears throat> okay. But this also brings me to this week's fun fact. Finally. <laughs> Okay, this fun fact is about the theme song, which you know if you know the movie. So Alex Cox, the director, approached Iggy Pop, of all people. Hmm. Of course he was an Iggy Pop fan. To do the theme song for the movie. At this time, Iggy Pop was at a major low. He, I feel like he would have been a mess at this point. He was. He was a mess in many ways. Not only just artistically, but financially and everything. Yeah. And Iggy later talked about this and said he was so grateful that Alex even approached him because he gave him a budget and he gave him free reign. And he oh. just said, do whatever you want. And Iggy did not have that at the time. And he said this really pulled him out of his funk and like gave him that inspiration again to like get back to it because he had this guy who just believed in him and let him do whatever he wanted. But part of the fun fact is, so he asked Iggy Pop to do the theme song. And as the story continues, (laughs) so they book the studio and the story from the engineer at the time was Iggy Pop walks in and he's like, this is going to be incredible. And he has put together this incredible backup band, which included two members of Blondie, as well as Steve Jones from the Sex Pistols. That's who walks in with Iggy Pop. Cool. And the engineer's like, this is going to be incredible. 
minutes before they're supposed to start recording, he said he notices Iggy Pop looks at Steve Jones and says, so, so play something. And then oh. Steve Jones starts kind of messing around. He's like, yeah, oh, yeah, let's stick with that. Okay, cool. And he realizes Iggy Pop didn't write a song. He's just going to kind of figure it out on the spot. You know what? Artists say yes and figure it out. Which later I found out that's how Iggy Pop writes for most of his stuff. He just kind of goes in and just feels it out and then makes it work. I respect that. But this engineer was not prepared for that. So watched Iggy Pop right before his very eyes, minutes before, write the theme for Repo Man, which is hilarious. And this just goes to show you how these guys are all professionals. The members of Blondie, Sex Pistols, Iggy Pop, they knew what they were doing. And in minutes, wrote this theme song. Let's hear a little clip because it's such a good song. So there you go. That fun fact this week is... Fake it till you make it. Somebody offers you money and uh, free reign, you just walk in the studio and figure it out. That's pretty rock and roll, though. It is pretty rock and roll. You're like, you know what? I've been there. I've done that. I got it. Yeah. I got this. This is just some 29-year-old's movie. So let's get to it. It's released. We're done now with the movie. It's out. Comes out March 2nd, 1984. It's released. It's weird, a theatrical run. Weird release time. It is weird. Rea- but it's sabotage from the beginning because during this process, the film studio had a turnover in management and everything, leadership. Oh. And it went from being super supportive and everybody believed in it to the new people going, this film doesn't have a chance. Which meant they did not want to put any money into making this film a success. They just wanted to be over and done with it and move on. Yeah. So it opened up. It only made $129,000 total in Whoa. the theater. Yeah, it bombed. Why would they do that, though, when they had invested money into they it? They just didn't care. They just wanted to be done with it. Weird. So it bombed, and it went to video, and that's like all cult films. It's a coupling of things. One is the critics, surprisingly, like loved this movie when they saw it. They saw it as a breath of fresh air. It made a lot of lists as like one of the best films of 1984. And the studio was sitting there going, wait, what? We thought nobody would like this. Turns out people really dug it. It was like, it just spoke to a lot of people. So that coupled with the soundtrack was really what Mm. brought it its success. That punk soundtrack was so popular that it just made people watch the movie. And because of it, it eventually got all its money back and went on to, you know, become the cult film that it is. You know, that interview or the rating or whatever that I watched with Siskel and Ebert, they were talking about it and how successful the film had been because of the strange like group of people who were renting it and it was teenagers and young adults which aren't the normal group yeah that in 1984 that were renting it was usually older or younger but it was this strange demographic and they really rented the heck out of this film yeah and it's great if you can find a copy i mean i found over the years thrifting many many copies of it there's a couple different releases I, I've now got a, a really nice copy, and I just think it's kind of a must-have in your collection. It's a great film. I also we have the son- the soundtrack, you know, on vinyl, and that's a must-have too if you're a music collector. It just it just sits well over time. It mm-hmm. is absolutely one of those films from the '80s. So I know we took a long time to get to it, but I'm really glad we covered it because it was really fun to revisit. You know, we've talked about this many times, and podcasters talk about this. It's a weird world to podcast when you watch a movie again that you grew up liking, because when you podcast, you're hyper aware of all the details and you want to talk about it. Whereas when you just watch a movie, yeah, a lot of things go over your head. And so to examine this from, you know, a different perspective was really fun. It was it, super enjoyable. It was it was a little I don't know, a little hard to hear some of the stories about Harry. 
I expected that. I figured he was quite a character. I didn't. I've, I've come to terms with it, and I appreciate it because I didn't have to deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> I think at the end of the day, too, they all kind of made up and they, you know, everything went smooth. But I think it was more just a rough start. Like mm. everybody had to okay. find their footing and figure out how to work together on set. Okay. You got a posture. I get it. Yeah, I exactly. Underst- I don't understand that. But. but it all worked out in the end. So that is Repo Man. I hope if you guys have not watched it, or if you haven't watched it in a long time, definitely check it out. It's a fun watch. You will not regret it. It's a quick watch, too. It just flows along really well. Yeah, read up on 1984 before you watch it, and get yourself in that headspace. <laughs> you know, put on your clothes, your 1984 Yeah, clothes. throw on fear and suicidal tendencies, and just get really ready to go. Kick back and settle in yeah well that's it for this week thank you for listening like we said at the beginning if you want to support us go rate review subscribe you can hear all of our episodes at lasergraves.com or wherever you get podcasts podbean spotify apple all that kind of stuff just figure out a way to listen and go check out our back episodes if you want to follow us, we are on Instagram at Lasergraves. And if you would like to support us further, you can join us at Patreon, where we do bonus content at patreon.com slash Lasergraves. And that is it for this week. Thank you for listening. We will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.